We are all at risk for medical malpractice. It's a risk that comes with our job. However, do you ever take the time to evaluate your particular malpractice risk and if there's anything you should be doing or not do to reduce your own malpractice risk? Welcome to the Business of Medicine on the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. Joining me today is Alan Adelman, medical malpractice attorney at Adelman Chef and Smith in Annapolis, Maryland. He has been engaged exclusively in the practice of hospital and healthcare law, including the defense of medical malpractice cases for over 30 years. Counselor, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be with you. Let's start first by talking about malpractice as an epidemic. Do you see it increasing? Is it decreasing? Is it stabilizing? What's going on out there? I think it's probably stabilizing. We're seeing probably fewer small claims, but more big claims. The verdicts are getting bigger all the time. So it's it's changing in the demographics of the claims we're seeing, but I don't think it's particularly getting worse or better. Some tort reform has taken effect in some states, which is put caps on cases which have made some cases less productive and required expert certifications. Those have helped somewhat, but overall, it's not a whole lot better now than it was 10 or 15 years ago. Is that because human nature has not changed and really the real issue is that it's the patient's anger that fuels a case and not necessarily malpractice? I think it's anger. I think that's a big factor. I think even a bigger factor are what I call unmet expectations. I think we live in a society where technology has become so prevalent that people really have a sense that you can fix almost anything. And if they get to a hospital or a doctor in time, with all the diagnostic equipment we have, all the imaging, all the invasive studies and everything else, it ought to be fixed. And when they get a bad outcome, people aren't ready for it and they don't accept it. So whose fault is that in creating this heightened expectation? I don't know if it's anybody's fault, but I think it, to a large extent in many situations, it is incumbent on a physician when they're working with the patient to create reasonable expectations. That's what the informed consent process is all about. So I, I should just say to my patients, listen, I just work here. I can't make you any promises. I'm just going to listen. I'll do my best, and that's all I can do. No, I think what the, you need to do is when you work with your patients or talk with your patients, you need to educate them. Don't make decisions for them. Don't make promises. Don't tell them, look, this is a simple procedure, we can easily fix this. Don't downplay things to the point that the patients come away with a sense that there's no risk involved. Medicine is not a precise science, and there's always some risk involved. And I think the best patient is an educated patient who truly understands what is the nature of the problem. If it's a surgical case, for example, show them the anatomy of where you're going to be working and that there are near structures, nerves, and vessels, and other things that can get nicked, and that can happen even when nothing is wrong. So educating the patient so they understand the complexity of the problem, understand the uncertainty of the process, and then they're going to be much better equipped to handle a bad outcome. But doesn't it also make a difference in how you handle that bad outcome? If the surgery goes bad and the surgeon doesn't come out and sit with the family, then they're more likely to sue versus the surgeon that comes out and sits there and hugs them and talks to them. Absolutely. But starting to hug a patient after there's a bad outcome, it's a little late. The the time to do it is earlier on. The best defense that physicians have to malpractice cases is a good rapport with your patients. They think you're a caring, understanding doctor who listens to them, and that will go a long way to keep you from getting sued. Do the same doctors get sued all the time? I mean, there are just guys out there that have no bedside manner, and they just keep getting sued. That is a factor. That is a factor. It happens to some people. Let me give you a little story about a case I defended, oh, 20 years ago. A physician in an emergency room had a patient, 16-year-old patient come in, 
trouble breathing, was very anxious. The physician was concerned that he had epiglottitis, but he wasn't certain. Took an x-ray, wasn't clear. Took another x-ray, wasn't clear. Took the x-rays, went up into the hospital, talked to another physician who was there. This was a small rural hospital. They both agreed it probably wasn't, but the ED doc decided out of an abundance of caution he would admit the patient. The patient went upstairs. About a half hour later, the ER physician heard a code being called, knew it was that patient, went up, tried to do a trach on him, couldn't, and the patient died. Three years to the day, which was the statute of limitations, the parents filed a lawsuit. And we settled the lawsuit because my doc, who I was defending, absolutely internalized that to the point that he felt he killed that kid, even though he didn't. When I asked the lawyer for the family why they waited three years to file suit, their answer was because the doc didn't care. And I said, what do you mean? This physician left this hospital, went to a small dock-in-the-box out west, and basically gave up his practice because he was so destroyed by what had happened. And when I asked him where they got the impression he didn't care, they said, well, when we went to the emergency room, the doctor told us to leave, wouldn't let us stay with our son. And, of course, the doctor was doing that because the parents were hovering and the kid was very anxious. Said he walked out of the emergency room two or three times, didn't stay around with their child when he was going out in the hospital to try to get somebody else to look at the films. And he said, worst of all, when our son died, he never came out and said anything to us. And that was because the physician was so distraught, two of his colleagues had to drive him home. And that was the worst case I've ever seen of perception not matching reality. But it's a good example of what gets people sued. Is that really the most common type of malpractice case these days, or or do you see them changing? You know, I think unmet expectations are probably the most common type or most common theme I see in medical malpractice cases. The true mistake that's made when you consider what physicians consider to be within the, quote, standard of care, which is a legal term, but things that are reasonable approaches, knowing that there's not just one right way to do everything, those cases are really fairly few and far between. If you've just joined us, you're listening to The Business of Medicine on the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. My guest today is Alan Adelman, an attorney from Adelman Chef and Smith in Annapolis, Maryland, specializing in defensive medical malpractice cases for over 30 years. We're talking about how we can decrease our own personal malpractice risks in our practices. Well, Alan, what can I do tomorrow? I'm an internist. When I go to work tomorrow, what can I do to make an attempt to decrease my risk besides being more upfront with my patients and educating them? Keep good records. So now we have we have electronic medical records. We can document everything under the sun. Is that necessarily a good thing? It probably is in the long run a better thing, but it's not necessarily a good thing. I mean, the electronic medical record gives you the ability to have medication prompts, and when you're looking for interactions, it helps you with a lot of these electronic records with prompts that ask you various questions that you fill in the blanks. So to that extent, they can be very helpful, but they can also become a crutch, and people rely on them too much and don't start exercising their individual judgment, and I think that's a concern that we all have that we're going to have to watch and see how that unfolds with time. But to the extent that an electronic record creates a legible, clear, cohesive record, that will be a big help. I can tell you there's nothing more difficult to defend than you get a physician in a deposition and he can't read his own handwriting in his notes and tell you what he said. Well, what about the the fact that everything now is time-punched so that could actually help or hinder the doctor if, as the attorney, you're going and reviewing his electronic medical record and you see he documented something three months later? It's just as bad as writing in the chart later. It's the same thing. I mean, the notes should be timed and dated in the first place, whether they're handwritten or electronic. 
And if they're not timed and dated, probably the plaintiff is going to try to convince a jury that they were not written at some later time or they were filled in after the fact or something. So having everything timed and dated may actually work out better. Have you seen any cases where the doctor is sued because of the electronic medical record and his lack of acting upon something that's in the record in a timely manner? No, not yet, and I don't think that's going to be much different than it is than any other record, whether it's an electronic record or a traditional paper record. If there are test results or clinical findings or observations or vital signs in a record that a physician doesn't note and doesn't react to appropriately, that's probably going to be the same risk whether you have an electronic record or a paper record. All right. Well, that's good to know. So the electronic medical record is not increasing the doctor's risk. Okay. So let's say I have a litigious patient, and they verbally threaten me. They say, I'm going to sue you, Dr. Caskell. Immediately, I go defensive, all my walls go up, and I can no longer care for this patient because there's been a breach in the relationship. What do I do? I I would like to dismiss this patient from the practice. I'd like to break up with them. How do I do it safely? I think the first thing you say is, I'm sorry you feel that way. I wish you didn't. But under the circumstances, you obviously don't have confidence in my care and treatment. And I think under those circumstances, you would really be better served by seeing another physician. So I, you know, I will work with you to transfer your care to somebody else to make sure that there's nothing that happens to you as a result of the transfer. But I, I really want you to be comfortable that you're getting the best care. And if you're not, then you really need to see somebody else. If that patient, in addition to being litigious, is also borderline personality disorder and I, I can see inflaming them even more by doing that because I'm I'm sort of rejecting them or dismissing them, and they could react even more vehemently. Well, now you're getting me into a clinical area that's probably over my head, but being a lawyer, that's never stopped me from talking about it. I'm sure you've had some obnoxious clients where you can tell that they've got some personality issues. Right, and and I think in terms of managing those, to the extent that you try to convey your concern about them, that you're not getting rid of them as a patient because you're, that you don't like them or you are concerned about their attitude towards you, just say, you know, you need to have confidence in the healthcare provider you're dealing with. You need to be able to listen to their instructions, follow their instructions, and feel like you're getting good care. And if you don't, then you really ought to go to somebody who does give you that sense of security. And I think if you framed it in those terms, that you're doing it for the benefit of the patient, not yourself, hopefully you can avoid some of those personality reactions that might be a problem. I hate to keep harping on it, but I'm thinking of certain patients that really go around doctor shopping and will still perceive that as a an insult to them, even though you're couching it as, you know, this is really what's best for you. It's not me, it's you. Well, I think the bottom line is that kind of a patient is going to be a problem for you either today or later. So the question is, are you want to deal with the problem today or later? For your own sanity, I would say get rid of the patient and deal with the problem today and deal with whatever problems come out of that transition as opposed to living with that problem on an ongoing basis and just waiting for it to erupt in some other form. Alan, can I get sued for something my front office staff does to a patient or does not do to a patient? Absolutely. So give me an example of something that's totally out of my control that I can get sued for. patient calls up who's been your patient on an ongoing basis and says, my headache is worse than it's ever been, and it's the worst headache I've ever had, and I'm seeing stars. And your front office thinks that this is just a problem patient who's always whining and puts it on a note and puts it on your desk, and you don't see it for two days, aneurysm ruptures. So something like that. 
All right. So what kind of policies can I put in place in my office to decrease my risk by educating my staff to really not blow off any sort of symptom like a headache or chest pain or diarrhea? You've identified some of the big ones. You clearly need to have your office staff have an understanding of those really crucial things. When somebody has them, they need to notify you immediately. And the patient calls in and says, you know, I'm feeling a little nauseous and, and my, I'm getting pain down my left arm and I just seem to be sweating a lot. They need to understand some of those fundamental signs of an evolving MI or a stroke or something of that sort or a cerebral bleed so that they notify you right away. Well, thank you for all that uplifting information. And on that note, our show comes to an end. And Alan Adelman, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell, and you've been listening to The Business of Medicine on the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157. To comment or listen to our full library of podcasts, please visit us at ReachMD.com. And if you register with the promo code RADIO, we'll give you six months free of streaming ReachMD for your home or office. Thank you for listening.